this is what we call a blood and transplant research unit event. What this means is that the University of Cambridge and the University of Newcastle has, have been commissioned by NHS, by the, by the National Health Service, uh, really to become a unified research uh, institution. Um, and this is one of the events that's organised as part of that. Hopefully we'll have a, um, an interactive discussion today about some of the interesting but also challenging issues related to transplantation. Uh, ranging from uh, organ shortages to um, dealing with organs that are perhaps of um, less than ideal quality. But before we start, I'd like to introduce uh, the people on the panel that are joining me. Uh, starting from the right, we have uh, Dr. Willem Jelson, who's a consultant hepatologist at Cambridge. He's one of the key people who looks after patients before and after uh, liver transplant and really is integral in helping us decide who... Um, uh, how we treat uh, patients with liver failure and how. Then we have Professor Andrew Bradley, who is the director of the Blood and Transplant um, uh, Research Unit that I mentioned, who is a professor of transplant surgery and head of department at the University of Cambridge. To my left, we have Dr. Marion MacDonald, who is a social anthropologist with uh, interest in medical aspects, and particularly in transplantation. And finally, to my left, we have Professor Chris Christopher Watson, who is a professor of transplant surgery um, but also with a particular interest in, in using novel technologies to assess and rejuvenate organs for transplantation. Now, the idea here is not really for us to do a lot of talking, but uh, to hopefully interact with you and answer some of the questions that you may have. But I thought I would just list the sort of topics that from our perspective, from, uh, from a medical side, uh, we think are interest, interesting, but also are challenging to us, and the sort of questions that we don't really have full answers to. Um, first and foremost is the issue of sh uh, shortage of organs. We simply do not have enough organs to be able to do transplants for all the patients that we want to do. It's the um, NHSBT, so Nas uh, NHS Blood and Transplant, estimates that approximately 1,000 patients every year die because of lack of transplants. So 1,000 patients every year, that's the equivalent of about three jumbo jets crashing every year. If you think about it, if really a jumbo jet was crashing every four months, there would be uproar. There would be demand from every corner of the society that we should do something about it and that this was not an acceptable situation. Well, that's, how we're, that's where we are with organ transplantation. And it's really the answer to this uh, um, problem is a difficult one. So how do we increase the number of organs? How do we allocate organs? How do we decide who gets an organ transplant and who doesn't? The nature of not having enough organs is that some people can have access to this life-saving treatment and others won't. And it's a very difficult decision as to who should, be, um, sh who should have access to this uh, life-saving um, facility. How do we decide what organs are good enough to be used? The nature of not having enough organs is that we are having to use organs that are perhaps less than ideal in terms of their quality. Perhaps they may be from older donors, or they may be from people who have had other uh, health problems in the past. Should we be using these organs? Is it fair to use these organs? What happens if we use these organs and perhaps these organs result in a bad outcome? If the, if the patient who gets a transplant comes to harm from using some of these less than ideal organs, whose responsibility is it to deal with that problem? There are lots of technologies that we will hopefully hear about, including the ones that Professor Watson is working on. Well, what is the value of these technologies? How do we test whether they are correct or not? How do we test whether they are beneficial or they are harmful? Who pays for these technologies that are all very expensive? The NHS isn't, um, 
uh, isn't awash with money. These new technologies are all very expensive. There are, there are countries that have adopted different models of organ transplantation, including some of the ones that we would perhaps f find um, unsettling. You know, the idea that should we pay people to donate their organs or should we reimburse them for the cost of uh, donating organs? Should you, be allowed to go on the, uh, should you be allowed to receive an organ transplant only if you yourself are on the organ donor re register? Some of these seem strange to us, but there are models that perhaps are um, effective in certain other circumstances. Now, before I start, I don't know whether there's anything from the panel that you specifically would like to say. Otherwise, we, we can start taking some questions. So, uh, the first question uh, is from Dr. Mike Murphy at the back. I was wondering uh, if it would work with the idea of presumed consent, which I believe they have in countries like Wales or in Spain, or parts of Spain, where everybody was presumed to be an organ donor unless they opted out. Do you think that's something that might work in the UK? Great question. Before, before I ask the panel to address this question, perhaps we can have a show of hands. So the, the situation in, in the UK at the moment is that you have to opt in to go on the organ donor register. In other words, you will not donate your organs unless you or your family actively decide to do so. The alternative is that we could say that everybody is an organ donor unless they opt out, unless they specifically decide that they should not uh, donate an organ. So can, I, can we please have a show of hands to see who thinks the law should be changed so that everybody is an organ donor unless they decide actively against it. Hands up if you think the law should be changed. Okay, so I'd probably say about two-thirds would be in favour of the law being changed so that everybody sitting in this room will become an organ donor when they die unless they actively decide against it. Perhaps we'll start with Professor Watson. So that is the case in um, Sweden, and their organ donation rate is worse than the UK's. Um, certainly in, in Wales, they've just ena enacted legislation to permit opting out. So, so you are in Wales assumed to be a donor uh, unless you've actually registered that you do not wish to donate. Um, but the organ donation rates in Wales increased dramatically when they were having the discussions about whether or not this should be enacted. So the actual discussion of organ transplantation and organ donation and its benefits in the media resulted in an enormous increase in, in um, people registering to be donors. Um, so maybe it's public awareness that matters more than, than opting in or opting out. The other example is in, is in uh, Scotland where um, the Scottish uh, Health Board had a very active um, advertising campaign pro-transplantation um, and the organ donation rates in, in Scotland were, were very high, much higher than the rest of the UK. Um, and when we approached the Department of Health to do the same, uh, we were told by Francis Moore that the money wasn't in the, in the pot and we weren't allowed to spend it. Even though kidney transplantation is a far cheaper treatment than kidney dialysis for a patient in renal failure. So, so overall, you are... Do I get the impression that you're not con convinced that changing the law will have a significant impact? We need impact? to increase the awareness about transplantation. It's my personal view to, to, make it, to make it happen. I think changing the law will have an impact, but making people aware of the benefits of transportation will, will have as much impact. Okay. Any, any dis dissenting views from the, from the panel? 
Professor Bradley. You know very well, I, I agree with <laughs> the majority of the audience and um, can't understand why we can't do as the Welsh have done and, and change the law. And that is not to say, even as a law for um, opting out, it doesn't mean to say that you just rush in to take organs from someone who's died. You do actually consult the next of kin still, but it's much easier to approach them um, if you know that their wish was presumed to be to be an organ donor. And many um, relatives and loved ones find it really difficult um, because they generally don't know what the wishes of the um, person who's died were. And in that situation, sometimes the default is to say, well, we don't know, we, we can't agree to their organs being used. Yes, I'll just take up one of those points, and I think I, we're in broad agreement. But the, um, it can never be the law alone. I mean, it, as it's been pointed out, it's got to be public awareness, but it's also got to be infrastructural changes, putting the money into the policy and changes in hospital organisation, more transplant coordinators and so on. Um, the Spanish uh, case has illustrated that. Uh, but just coming back to one point made here about um, the assumption of people being organ donors, it's interesting that in the UK we rely at the moment, in, uh, at least in Scotland, uh, and uh, England um, and Northern Ireland, we rely on the fiction of the individual. And it, it's the individual who's supposed to be bounded by the skin to be autonomous with a will and makes a choice. This works in our market and many areas of our life. Sometimes we like it, sometimes we don't. What we do notice is that it involves choice in matters of organ donation from the individual, and that's enshrined in the Human Tissue Acts in the UK. But what happens in practice, in all countries, it seems, where, whether you have <coughs> presumed consent or informed individual express consent, is that that fiction becomes obvious because the kin, those who are deemed relationally to constitute in our lives, are consulted. And they're consulted in various ways. And the mode of consulting the kin can be critical. My view would be, as long as the process is robust, then opting out is a good would be a good mechanism. But it would have to be robust. There would have to be public consultation, as other members of the panel have said. I also think that Wales using the system gives us an, a chance to um, appraise um, the, the effects of it in Wales, and perhaps learn from their mistakes also. Is, is there a, perhaps a potential danger that actually by um, giving the people, people the option of opting out. Actually, we may increase the number of people who would, wouldn't have otherwise opted, opted out, or the families wouldn't have opted out. I, I think, I think that, that, that would be a potential danger of, the, um, of using an opt-out system, as I think Chris alluded to. And that's why I think it would be very um, useful and important to assess um, the, the experience in Wales. Can I, can I one further point? Organ donors tend to come from intensive care units where they've been looked after <coughs> and, and uh, sadly have died. Um, the intensive care unit bed provision in the UK is the worst of anywhere in Europe and it's four times, we have four times fewer ITU beds per million population than the, than the Spanish. So it's fine holding up Spain as an example of, of the benefits of opting in and opting out. Whereas we have a big infrastructure problem that stops us, would stop us anyway reaching the Spanish target. If I was being devil's advocate, um, what I would say is actually uh, changing the law, relatively speaking, is, is, a, is a cheap intervention. 
what it takes to increase the organ numbers is really increasing the infrastructure that you talked about in terms of IT beds, in terms of specialist staff who, are, who, ma who make donation possible. And actually, to institute all of those things, which really makes a difference, is very expensive. And if you're perhaps, if you were cynical, you would say, well, look, you know, a government, rather than investing resources and money into making these really important differences, actually opt to change the law, which is relatively cheap, but what may not make um, a huge impact. Well, can I just, I mean, I don't disagree with what the point you made, but what do you think the refusal rate is from uh, next of kin? Oh, uh, probably less than 50% or 30%. It's about 40%. Yeah. So it's, it's very high. And, you know, I just don't personally see the logic of burying life-saving organs in the ground or burning them when, Absolutely. as you said, hundreds and hundreds of people are dying yeah. every year. But that's a personal view. Any, any views from the floor? Perhaps anybody who thinks that actually... I, I just wonder, I've once heard... To, in the case of the liver, most liver disease that necessitates a transplant is self-inflicted obesity, drinking too much. Is that not true? Um, so two of the um, most common indications for liver transplantation are um, non-alcohol-related fatty liver disease and alcohol-related uh, alcohol liver disease. Yeah. Would it not then be cheaper to put money into changing people's mind? Than not becoming obese, not to overdrink. Right. I, 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 in terms of liver disease in the UK, I absolutely agree that more resources are required to um, to address um, these issues. Of course, we're faced um, with a patient who has reached end stage liver disease in, in our unit, so the the decisions are are very difficult. But I entirely agree that um, that, that we we need to address those problems, and that's not just in this country. You know in the United States where 70% of, um, of, of the population are obese, that there's this ticking time bomb in terms of um, non-alcohol-related fatty liver disease. Can I just say, most patients who need a liver transplant don't have self-inflicted disease. They've got a virus infection or they've got a, an inflammatory condition or they've got other things. So a significant number do, if you like, like self-inflicted. Although, you know, I think it's a bit unfair to some of the people who consume large amounts of alcohol actually have a, you know, the disease of alcoholism. It's not that they go out to need a liver transplant. So I would entirely echo those points. And, and patients who we transplant for the indication of alcohol-related liver disease have shown a firm commitment to being abstinent from alcohol. Um, and um, we select um, patients who, um, and the statistics will bear this out, do very, very well after liver transplantation from a self-inflicted illness. So everyone makes mistakes in life. Everyone in this room has made mistakes. Um, but but the, the key issue is, is that these patients, um, um, you know, um, turn, turn a new leaf, if you like. Um, and we make sure that that is the case. Uh, lady in the back. I was wondering if you might elaborate on the logic of um, next of kin or family refusing organs if the donor themselves have got a donor card or they've been willing to give up their organs. What, why is it that it can always be overruled by family? So... So this is a situation that also happens even in Spain, whereby where the, the patient has given an, an advanced directive decision that they want to donate, and then if the family um, don't want that to happen, usually the tendency is to go with the wishes of the family. Now I think this is a consequence of the fact that 
the time of organ donation is clearly a very distressing time for the family and for the medical professionals. And at that point, um, what is not in the interest of anybody is to get into a, a conflict, if you like, whereby a decision is made actively against the wishes of the family. I think that can result in the escalation of the problem in that immediate scenario, but perhaps more importantly could have very um, uh, bad consequences in the future. Because in, in terms of organ donation in general, really it's very important that we don't um, alienate families from the idea of organ donation. You could have a scenario whereby you go against the wish of a family and to, to use organs for donation. But and then you saying that, Crush, I think she's wondering, you know, what scenario would lead them to say that? Um, well, I mean, that's, uh, I guess it could be a personal belief of the family or it could be, um, um, occasionally it could be religious beliefs or um, uh, the, the particular personal circumstances. But the, but the point I was, I guess, to, to finish off, I was making is that if you go against the wish of the family, you may alienate 20 people that would, will no longer become um, organ donors, and they will speak to their friends and family, and they will also not become organ donors. But, but you're right. I mean, there's a whole variety of reasons why um, um, families don't want their loved ones to uh, donate. There's, there are two other points I would make. Firstly, if... And we know that someone is on the organ donor register when they die and, and then the specialist nurses approach the family. The consent rate from the families is around about 95%. If we don't know that fact, it, it's about 60%. So they're much more likely to say yes if they know. And that's particularly helpful if there's been a discussion. When you get your car, when you've been putting your name on the register, tell your family and friends that you've done it so they know what your wishes are. Um, the second point is that as the law stands at the moment, the Human Tissue Acts in the UK do permit us to retrieve organs from donors who have expressed a wish to donate and whose name is on the register. Um, now, there is a conflict there, as Karosh has highlighted, but we are, we are legally entitled to remove organs if we wish to. Oh, so the family can't say no in that case? They can't say no, but we generally go with their wishes for reasons that they're <laughs> <laughs> They, they legally can't say no. Card, the point of the donor card is that it does help in the conversation to say that we... We're not talking so, about so conversation, we're talking about saving other people's lives. Sorry. Absolutely. <laughs> That's an important point. And often the, the way that, I mean, the specialist nurses who lead this conversation are very well trained and very experienced in managing what are very, very difficult interpersonal um, yeah. um, discussions and, and scenarios. <laughs> and quite often the, the conversation is flipped the other way around with the family and the, and the idea is that, well, if your loved one had said, that they didn't want their organs donated, would you go against their wishes? And most families would say, well, of course we wouldn't go against their wishes. And then the, the situation is reversed. Well, they have now given their wish that they want their organs uh, donated. Why would you go against it? But you're right. I mean, you could have a scenario where the law protects uh, the institution to say, well, actually, we don't care what the family says. We, we can do as we please. But, but as I said, that in the long term, that's not, probably not a wise strategy because it would alienate those members of the family, and then they would no longer become organ donors themselves. Uh, gentleman at the front. <coughs> With this impending increase in the number of organs that are being donated, will we have enough trained staff to actually go out and use the horrible term, harvest the organs? I know Addenbrook sent their own team out, um, mainly because the hospitals are very Bradley. 
So in the UK now, the last several years, we've, we've got a very um, well-orchestrated system for um, organ retrieval, and it's a national system, and Adam Brooks is one of seven um, abdominal organ retrieval teams who retrieve for the whole of the UK, um, and that's all orchestrated through the NHS blood and transplant organisation. So now in the UK, we, we have a we're pretty effective system. I mean, it does, uh, there is a bit of strain on it, but by and large, it's very effective. So if, if there is an organ, then we're under um, very clear guidance about the time we have to, to get out to the donor hospital, how long it takes. The team, um, full team is mobilized, and that's coordinated nationally. So I don't think like you know, 20 years ago, where you just have to try and find someone to go and do the operation now, we, we actually have a fully um, equipped national service. Yes. I just have a natural reluctance to this term, presume consent. It's all nice having an altruistic term, oh, I'm saving lives, but it's a slippery slope. I mean, why are you assuming presumed consent for a, for a liver transplant, and why don't you assume consent that if I die, you can take my house, my money, and everything else, kind of along with it? It's, it's just... People aren't educated necessarily. Well, there is a presumed consent. Con the government just because you assume they've, they, they haven't signed it, are you, why are you assuming that they've accepted it? Maybe they're ignorant, they don't read the papers. You, you're just making a lot of assumptions on people's behalves. Sorry, Dan, sneezing. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you know, that, I mean, there are lots of arguments like that, and that's, that's a very one. But, you know, you come back to actually, well, what are we trying to do in society? And why is it, um, you know, why would you not want to give your organs? That, that's the question I would ask. And, you know, if you or one of your family were desperately in need of a life-saving organ, you know, I think there's some of the nastiness of these arguments become a bit easier to deal with, actually. So I, I'm very pragmatic, and um, my colleague here is much more intellectual, and give you very, um, very good arguments about this. But, you know, you can cut through all that, and we're desperately short. Patients are dying through lack of organs, and you know we we are, have to do something about that. Is it? Do you think it would be a slippery slope uh, in terms of our rights, uh, our human rights, and our sort of uh, within the society? I think it, in some instances it could be seen like that, but there is a, we do make a distinction very carefully in Europe between bodies and property, and we keep bodies out of the market. You cannot own a body in the sense in which you own something else which you're therefore able to buy and sell. We make quite careful distinctions. In a sense, you know, for all of us, our biologies are our biography. And there's something very special about body parts that we acknowledge, which is different from your house and your car and so on. And therefore, I think it, it was touched on a moment ago, considering considering the relations between loved ones, if you think of it, would I, would I want somebody to have given an organ to save my mother or my brother or my daughter or whatever? This is expanded in the UK and has been, for obvious reasons since the Second World War particularly, to a notion of national need particularly, um, that doesn't limit it to that. But that do you really care about other people sufficiently? The very notion of giving as opposed to one-off transactions of buying in the market and so on. The very notion of giving and all pulling together. Why, as Andrew Bradley posed, why would you think otherwise? And of course there be, could be 
many reasons for that. Some people find a, a dislocation between thinking of persons and biographies and, and so on, and organs, body bits. But then Surgeons do that daily, and it's more difficult for others sometimes, <laughs> but you can think of it as relationships. You, we have relationships with each other. We're all mutually interdependent in all sorts of ways. Mm -hmm. But and in that case, if what you're saying is right, why have presumed consent? You've just said the body isn't yours. You die whether you want it or not. We take it because it, the body isn't yours to give. It, it, you've just said that it's different from property. So, so why don't we just take it, irrespective of consent? Well, the country needs it. We need organs. Just take it. Why not take it from someone who's alive? You've got two kidneys. Why don't you give one? <laughs> because there is something very special about bodies. <laughs> That's why. We don't own them, you said. So they're not ours once we're dead. They are our persons. We don't, you don't put it... You did, it's actually inseparable from persons in all sorts of ways. And it's the job of these guys. a very difficult job to separate and do that very difficult task, which no one would envy them. It's a supreme skill, and I've seen it happen. And the, but the, that, that specialness of persons uh, means that we are actually not going to put it in the realm of my property that you can take and so on. There is an unwillingness to do that, and I think we have to understand that, and, and the relational constitution of that, all the family being involved, and all the rest of it. Whether you want to extend that to say, look, we are all mutually interdependent anyway. There is something special about this. Why not let's assume that we're going to acknowledge a mutual interdependence, unless somebody wants to do otherwise and <laughs> go in for the individual and so on? That might be an option for some people. That might be the way to go. We'll take questions, gentlemen, from the back. As I understand it, the family of the donor is kept anonymous from the recipients of the organ and their family. So what would happen, pragmatically maybe, if, if that anonymity was null, if, it didn't take, if they knew each other or they knew who the organ was going to? How would that change the nation in this sort? Okay, so, so that we understand the question. So the idea is, what if I knew who my loved one's organs were going to yeah. be transplanted to? The, it, by and large, there, there is a sort of a logistical difficulty in that. It, in that quite often at the time of donation, it is the recipient may not already be identified. So it may be that that link is not even um, um, known yet. But you're right, okay, we'll, we'll take the question, what in principle, in other words, could we um, influence the decision to donate or not by perhaps uh, identifying who the recipient is going to be? You could take that to an extreme where, you, where it is directed donation. You could say, well, actually, I will only donate my organs if they go to a child or if they go to somebody who hasn't had this disease or they, they will go to a particular race. Well, at the moment, the law is very clear is that directed donation is not possible. In other words, I can't stipulate that I will donate my organs but only if they go to a man or to a woman or to a child. That doesn't work. But in a more positive way, um, do you think... Um, well, it would make a difference if, um, if perhaps families knew that their um, loved one's kidneys were going to save a child rather than an adult. Could we exploit that um, influence? Should we exploit that influence? I, I, I don't think um, we should exploit that influence um, because of a kind of slippery slope argument. Um, we'd, we would start... Um, we would start essentially biasing 
the decisions and um, and um, it, it would lead to prejudice and there'll be certain patients who would be prejudiced against I'm sure so I I, I would be very much against um, that approach um, the in terms of the um, recipient and donor the, the, uh, the donor family being in touch with the, the recipient there is a, a, a method by which the the recipient can contact the donor family, but it's all done anonymously. But I, 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 my impression is that um, the donor families often find that very helpful, that um, their loved one's organ, which is an extraordinary gift from, in my view, the, their loved one and the family, um, you know, has gone to a good home. And, um, and, and I, think, I think that that's a very positive thing. Okay. Maybe over back. Um, there's just more of a technical question along those lines. Can you uh, transplant an adult organ to a child? Or That's a surgical question. Professor Orson. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you can transplant a, an adult kidney into a child, and that's what's often done. Um, uh, but there is an issue with how you manage the child um, anesthetified, because a, a, an adult kidney may take the circulating volume of the child to perfuse it, so you need to be very careful how much fluid you give and blood you give during the anaesthetic to make sure the kidney's got perfused and the child stays alive and so on. So it's a very difficult thing to do. As far as putting an adult liver into a child, there isn't enough room, but you can take part of the liver. You can divide the liver and take usually the left lateral segment, the little bit on little triangle bit on the left side, and put that in a child and it fits quite nicely. And that actually leaves two thirds of the liver that you can put into another adult. So we do have a policy in the UK of when the liver's uh, donor is under forty and the liver is otherwise normal. Um, then we divide it and give half or a third actually to the child and two thirds to an adult. Um, lady in the middle. Yes, we're talking, <coughs> uh, talking about things getting onto a slippery slope. And I think we are discussing here organs, kidneys, liver, pancreas, eyes perhaps, I don't know. Sure. We also hear now about face transplants, hand transplants. And I think if people thought they were going down that That's a great question. I'm to bring two two separate aspects in. One, Professor Bradley, from if, if you were running your transplant unit, how much resources would you want devoted to something like ha hand or face transplant, knowing that actually it will ultimately benefit a smaller number of people? And is that something that, as a as a medical professional, should be making? Or should we say, look, we don't have enough money to pay for livers and kidney transplants. What? Well, let's not. Yeah, it's a very good question. It's not an easy answer. I mean, but people do feel very differently about certain things. So many d people are happy for their organs to be donated after they die, but they're not keen on their eyes being um, interfered with. Um, some people don't like their heart. You know, there's something special about the heart for, for some people. And you're right, the hands, the limbs, and the, and the face are, again, are very different. So the consent form for donation does cover these different things. And I, I think, you know, there is a, an innate um, degree of comfort about giving an organ, but I think it's, it's more difficult with these other things. So I, I don't really have a, a good answer for that. What's, you know, we're all sort of organs and face transplants. There's, from, from, a, from your perspective, 
is a face transplant fundamentally different to another to a heart transplant? But we seem to be happier with things that we don't normally see. So the internal <laughs> organs, we seem to worry less about than things we can see. And hand transplants have indeed posed some problems to recipients being able to see the hand more interestingly in one study than a face transplant. But uh, you people would know better than I do, but it always seems to me that talking of face transplants is not quite accurate because the face as a whole is something by which we identify a person. But the face transplant is actually the tissues. And saying this is face makes people feel it. It's actually the person <laughs> recognizably being transferred. So I think there's a misnomer uh, there, which is problematic. Okay. Uh, gentlemen. Yes, where do matters stand on um, developing and growing organs suitable for transplantation into humans in other species, for example, in pigs? Because I understand there is some work going on in trying to develop organs suitable for use in humans in pigs. Where does that, how far has that got, and what are the problems about that? Okay, Professor Watson. There was a, a famous surgeon, I forgot his name, Andrew may know his name, who said that xenotransplantation, which is what you're talking about, has a great future and always will have, um, implying it'll never be achieved. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, I think there was an initial challenge in that if you were to transplant a pig organ into a human, we have antibodies circulating molecules in our blood that would immediately dis destroy that organ. That hurdle has been got over by manipulating the, the pigs by, by changing some of the, the, um, the, the antigens, the markers that are expressed on the cells. Having got over that hurdle, the, the next thing was found as an even bigger hurdle that we haven't surmounted yet. So we've got a little way, but there's a long, long way to go. Even transplanting cells, so single, single cells like, like beta cells that make insulin, for example, um, there's a huge challenge in doing that in transplanting pig islets, <coughs> cells, insulin-making cells into, into humans. And I'm not sure how near we are to that. I think we're probably near in growing stem cells, human cells in, in, uh, in culture, and then being able to, to transplant those to provide function like, like, um, like the pancreas in making insulin. <coughs> in terms of getting a complex organ like a kidney or, or a heart, there, there are huge challenges. Um, for example, if you use a pig heart, the pig's average blood pressure is about 80 millimetres systolic blood pressure. Yours and mine is about 120, so we're running around, we'll be walking around fainting all the time because there's not sufficient blood pressure being achieved by the pig's heart. All the hormones that act in us act very differently on the pig. And the pig's liver, for example, makes clotting factors 20 times the concentration uh, as that we have in ourselves, so we'd be going around getting clots in our legs and our heads and all sorts all the time. So there are lots of physiological reasons as well as immunological reasons. And then the, 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 uh, in the background, the thoughts that maybe we can get viruses transmitted in the same way as AIDS was thought to come from, from monkeys, you can get big viruses that, that may be transferred to humans. So there are lots of um, hurdles there that, that weren't necessarily apparent when the pioneers first started. Okay, thank you. Uh, lady at the back. So the question is about organ banks and creating uh, organ, organ banks. So I guess the, the, the organs in those banks could either be organs that we have um, retrieved or removed from human donors already. And at the moment, there are very quite um, uh, defined limits on how long we can keep organs um, alive outside of the body um, before we, can, we have to transplant them, before they perish, if you like. And there are various technologies that they are trying to 
extend that time so that we can keep organs for longer in order to perhaps increase who they can, the, the, uh, where they can be transplanted or whom to. But that really would only happen, at least in the foreseeable future, for, um, for, for a matter of hours. If you're referring to actually um, perhaps regenerating or generating organs fresh from cells, um, there are lots of different people working on that, but that, that really is decades away. The idea that we can, for example, generate a heart from, uh, from cells is still probably decades away. Gentlemen, there's a middle. You mentioned earlier about age in relation to the giving of organs. I, I wasn't aware of that. Could you elaborate on that and how it kicked in? Okay. Very good question. So, so I, I, you may or may not be surprised to hear that the average age of uh, an organ donor is someone in their 50s. So it's not young people on motorbikes by and large suffering fatal head injuries. It's, it's really the older members of society. And um, we use kidneys, for example, constantly from donors who are sometimes in their 80s. So there's, um, you know, clearly as you get older, your organs are less, <laughs> less good, um, but they're better than nothing very often. Um, so that we are prepared to look at possibility of <coughs> organs from, um, if you like, the older people, in, even in their um, 80s. Uh, I don't think there's anyone here in their 80s. But I mean, that's a very good point. In that, is that when somebody gets an organ transplant, it's not a new organ they're getting. What we, you know, we very clear to our um, patients that this is a second-hand organ, an organ that has already had a life be it a short life or a long life, and therefore has been exposed to the environment of that body and may have you know, suffered some harm, if you like, by, um, through um, either environmental factors or through disease, through um, cigarette smoking or through um, having, you know, the donor having had high blood pressure or diabetes or, or having had some infection. So we are faced with a situation where the vast majority of organ transplants are not perfect organs. And then there is this question of if you had, if you were, um, if you had a disease and you were faced with the possibility of having an organ transplant or not, then you um, sometimes have to make a difficult decision. Do you accept a, um, a transplant using an organ which is perhaps less than ideal, or do you not? And do you wait for the alternative? I think that's a, that's a sort of scenario that your patients uh, often come across. Yeah. So the, the consent process for um, organ transplantation from the recipient's point of view is quite an interesting one in that regard um, <clears throat> because we go through what we call um, marginal donors. So marginal donor organs are those organs that have factors that would predict a potentially poor outcome. So, um, so um, we, we go through several factors with recipients um, to assess whether they would accept a, an organ that may not function beautifully. And I think that's a very difficult area because a, a lot of re recipients say, well, I, I don't really understand this. You know, this decision's up to you. You know, you understand it. And um, I don't know what people's views are on that, on being asked difficult questions like that as a patient. Okay, that's a, that's a good point. Let's, who, who would want, if, if imagine that you were in, in a position where you need an organ transplant, how much detail would you want to know about the, the quality of that organ? Are you of the extreme whereby you think, look, there are health professionals, experts at this, I just want them to tell me that I should take this organ or not? Or at the other extreme, 
you are the type of person who says, look, I want all the detail. I want to know all the risks that are associated with this transplant so I can make my own decision. So those are two polls. Who, just as a show of hand, who would want to know all the detail that was available in terms of the quality of an organ? Quite a lot. I would say at least half. Who, who, is, who would prefer to defer the decision to the clinicians, to the doctors and the surgeons, to tell them, we have considered all the facts, we've looked at all the numbers, and this is, a good, this is an organ that you should accept? Okay. Okay. So that's, that, that's interesting, of course. What we have to do in a, in a kind of real situation is that we need to be able to cater for patients who are in both ends of the spectrum. So what we have is we have a consent process which, which is very detailed and we give as much information about transplantation in general in advance. And that includes listing some of the types of risks that may be faced in the event of a transplantation. And patients sometimes have a choice to opt in or opt out of certain type of transplant. So somebody may say, look, I don't want to get an organ from a donor who previously has had a brain tumour or has had a tumour elsewhere. Okay? Now, the reason that we give that option is we know there is a tiny, tiny risk of transmitting cancer from the, from the donor to the recipient. But that risk is indeed very small and quite often much smaller than the risk of not taking that transplant. Because if you don't take that transplant, it may be that you, your risk of dying while waiting for a transplant is, more, is, more, um, is greater. But these discussions are often take, take place at 3 o'clock in the morning, <coughs> which makes it quite difficult. Uh, gentleman at the back. Speaking from experience, before my liver transplant, <coughs> I was in no fit state to decide one way or the other. I was just too ill. As far as would I have accepted a, a, a not very good organ, I was actually called in twice. The first time I was told by the surgeon, sorry David, you wouldn't want that organ. Two days later, they found one that did suit me. And I'm very pleased to say it is working extremely well. Right, fantastic. So you, you, you are happy with having deferred at least part of that decision to the, to the medical team? Yes. Okay. Um, but you do highlight one, one issue, is that, is that you say you were no fit state to choose, and, and we do allocate organs, trying to allocate um, liver certainly to the patients who need them the most, and they're the ones where the risk of, of saying no is highest. If you turn an organ down, your risk of dying on the waiting list is much higher. So we, we do try and transplant the patients who need the organs the most. This, this issue of assessing risk is, is quite important. You know, the risk of me taking this organ and perhaps uh, coming to harm from it versus the risk of not taking the organ and waiting for an organ which may or may not come. How good are we at assessing risk, do you think? I think right. we're pretty bad at it, probably. There's a, there we, I mean, we don't live probabilities in our daily lives unless you're gambling. <laughs> Even then, you probably do badly, I think. Um, uh, the, it seems to me that it's very difficult for people to assimilate quite what that means, how those figures were constructed, and what it might mean in practice in their lives, because the statistics are on a given population, obviously. But you, as a person, in your biography, how do you fit into that uh, figure and the way it's been constructed? It's very difficult, 
I think, extremely difficult. So everybody all round is judging it against other risks. You know, the chance I heard somebody say the chance of my football team winning is about the same. <laughs> you know, trying to fit it into what they know of what the chance and risk is in their lives otherwise. It's very difficult, I think. Uh, Can you be an organ donor whilst also wanting to leave your body to science? That's a good question. Um, well, you could yes. certainly donate your, your organs and then the, because of course in terms of donating the organs, we're talking about um, kidneys, liver, pancreas, maybe small bowel, heart, lung, cornea, maybe skin. Um, but certainly then there's a lot of bo your body left over, which I guess could, could be uh, uh, donated to science. So in principle, I believe yes. I can't think of a specific example, but in principle it is. Gentlemen, the you middle. think of the idea of almost uh, really printing organs? Uh, I know it's happened in America as a temporary solution until they get a real organ that can help them. Okay, so that's so that's a that's a very good question. It's about three um, D printing of organs. So the idea with three D printing is that you may be able to, uh, if you had a um, suspension of cells, cells in a solution in, in, a, in a fluid, you may be able to place these cells individually in particular positions on a scaffold, on a framework, which would then generate some sort of a tissue that you may be able to transplant. So the closest thing that that's happening to now is printing of skin cells, because skin from a structural perspective is fairly um, relatively simple, but it's still very complex. And there are various institutions that are close to actually being able to print skin on a, on a level that is, that is used. And then there are people who are working on printing, for example, blood vessels, which are sort of, again, fairly simple tubular structures that they may be used. But, they, but again, in terms of printing an organ that functions as a three-dimensional structure, like a heart that beats or a liver that performs all these functions, I think, uh, in principle, um, well, in reality, we probably are still years, if not decades, away. But there are lots of people who are working on that. There is another application of 3D printing. There's the paediatric cardiac surgeons who deal with um, children with hearts that are scrambled so that this vessel's in the wrong place and that vessel's in the wrong place. Um, the paediatric surgeons will ask their, their radiology colleagues to, to do scans of the, the chest and then they can 3D print this, the anatomy that they will be faced when they operate on the child and rehearse the operation they're going to do to transplant it or, if, or not even transplant the corrective surgery. But it, it, so 3D printing has gone a long way to help some surgical specialties move along with forwards. Uh, lady at the far right. Uh, could you tell us a bit about uh, live donors? Is it something that you'd want more people to just come forward and do for their loved ones? Professor Bradley. So that mainly pertains to kidney transplantation and about a third of all the kidney transplants carried out in the UK are from living donors and about half of those are from related genetically related donors, that would be um, SIBs or parent to their offspring or occasionally an adult offspring to their more elderly parents. The other half are um, spouses or um, partners or um, very close friends. And there is a very small, relatively small, although actually now it's a couple hundred a year, of what we call altruistic donors, which are perfectly healthy people who feel they want to do something really, really useful and they want to be assessed to see if they can donate a kidney to a stranger. Um, and in other books, we're very um, 
to be honest with you know, if we had an abundance supply of deceased donor organs, we would probably say we shouldn't do any living donor transplants because there's a risk of killing the donor, about one in 2,000 in the case of a kidney donation, and about one in, between one in 10 and one in 20 of our kidney donors, our living donors, get a serious um, complication around the time of the operation which they recover from, but you know, it's an unpleasant thing. So, in a nutshell, that's living um, donation which we, we support currently, um, but it's a big deal being a living donor, and you've got to be, we, there's a very um, strict uh, medical assessment, and also um, you've got to be sure that um, the donors are doing it of their own free will and not being subtly coerced by their partners or sibs or, or whatever, you know, I think what I'm getting at. I'm interested. How many people would accept a, um, an organ, say a kidney, from, from their loved one who was alive as a living donor? In other words, so some of our patients, we, they, we find they say, well, actually, I know I need a kidney, but I'm not willing for my husband or wife or father to undergo an operation to donate me that organ precisely because of the risks um, that Professor Bradley mentioned. Is there, can, can we show, have a show of hands of people who wouldn't accept that risk for their loved ones? In other words, would not accept a, a kidney from their relative because it's too, too okay, a, a reasonable number. Okay. Any, any other questions? It was more than I thought. Gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> I was just curious what the main reasons are for people to not donate organs and if there's any correlation to an individual's perceived value of the body when it's a corpse, and if you see an increase in donations from individuals who perhaps are more willing to do like a cremation or something along those lines where the, the corpse is not allowed to remain. Okay. Are you able to? <laughs> well, yes, I think this sort of relates to points we've made earlier. I mean, it is a question that's constantly posed, and I think it will be... Uh, there are some similarities throughout Europe, but it, it is often case by case. But the, um, it, it is difficult to, for people to imagine their own death, that they are actually finite and immortal. That's one thing. But also the, the capacity to think of yourself as a giver in the sense that is required by organ donation can be quite difficult for some people. And it is a matter of... Uh, it's interesting that... Um, example, a study that's been done in Denmark of uh, people who put themselves uh, down to donate organs, uh, surprisingly comes out with the idea that most of the people doing it are quite conscious of what's going to happen to them, that there's going to be an operation, their organs will be removed, and they're quite matter-of-fact about it, and they're doing it, and they're quite happy with it. It, it, I, no such study has been done in the UK, and I sense from the study partial bits that have been done that people do find that more difficult um, to, to think about. Um, it is easier, and it is more readily available to us, and, and is operational in our lives here, the idea of donation and, and giving, and that is one way in which we can think through and actually practice uh, this tremendously beneficial um, process of giving organs. It was, if I, I can come back, somebody raised the issue of um, anonymity and, and giving. And one of the issues about um, giving, if you don't have anonymity, is that it, it can appear to demand a return. When, when you give a gift to somebody, you know, 
for Christmas and you don't get one back, you seem, hmm. <laughs> expect them to give something back. And we do expect reciprocity in gifts, uh, exchanges for many philosophers, the basis of social life in some form. Uh, but of course, what you're, what you're giving to is a great cool, however large you want to imagine that. And, and you will be getting some. You get benefit back from the NHS, which is our amazing um, national uh, practical imagination of a giving process, a redistribution uh, process, by, both through money, through organs, through donations of tissue, through, through help, volunteering, jobs, etc. It is, it is, we, we enjoy that system and we enjoy the benefits of it. So I think, phrased in those terms, it is easier for people to think of a redistribution process of giving and not feel, if it's anonymous, uh, just in the way you give your taxes, and it's anonymous and you don't know where it's going. But it is a general redistribution process which avoids what's sometimes been called the tyranny, <coughs> the tyranny of the gift, where somehow somebody might feel that they've got to give something back because you gave them a kidney, as it were. The vast majority of people, when they die, I'm afraid, would not be in a suitable to be an organ donor. So the organ donors are a very small percentage of total deaths, people would actually be suitable as organ donors. So I'm afraid that, I don't know, 95% of you here, well, you all die one day, but 95% <laughs> won't, I'm afraid, be able to be organ donors. Uh, gentlemen. So it's kind of encompassing everything we've talked about today. Uh, Two-part question, really. Do you see organ donations going up or down? And then with the future of perhaps driverless cars, I know you talked about motorcycle accidents in particular, but uh, cars account for roughly around 20%, would you say, of organ donations? Lowers? Uh, there's an estimate in the U.S. of around 17 or 15%. Even that amount taken out of the, the organ transplant list would still be fairly large. And if it's, again, if we're not taking a bike incentive, that's off the table. But even less organs, what do you think would be the point at which the U.K. or the world will get alternate ways to get organs versus, like, the Toronto method where you could potentially pay for organs? So, Will, perhaps you can take that question. In terms of your patients, do you anticipate that more of them will become transplanted in the future, or less of them, or do you foresee alternative treatments that will take place instead of transplantation? Well, um, I, I think the relative proportions of different diseases will change with time in terms of liver transplantation. Um, the major difference between liver disease and um, renal disease in terms of um, in terms of supportive therapy is the absence of a dialysis um, for liver disease. I guess um, it's possible we will get the equivalent of a dialysis machine, and um, and there are some um, some machines out there that don't work particularly well, but there are, there is some research going on to it. Um, so so that could change things drastically. It's difficult to know how one would make a dialysis machine though that would perform all of the functions that the liver um, performs. So I think there will always be a kind of um, holding measure until <coughs> patients um, receive an organ. So in summary, I think the, the um, relative proportions of different diseases will change, but the need for transplantation will be there for, for certainly for, for, for a long time to come. Uh, gentlemen, over so there's that, um, I want to say, Italian surgeon who last year said he couldn't perform a head transplant in a few years. And um, earlier this year, he was reputed to have um, performed operation on a monkey. Do you think that will help or hinder organ transplant rates? Professor Watson. 
Is, is all publicity good publicity? <laughs> publicity causes discussion about donation, and it generally is good publicity. Um, and even in some of the um, uh, more contentious things that have happened in the, in the recent past, discussions have actually increased donation rates. So the issue with the um, DVLA, um, uh, I feel what I was now, but where the DVLA coding was incorrect, and they had to go back and, and find out where people uh, opting where people saying they want to be donors or not. Um, actually, the, the publicity around that made far more people come forward and, and, and sign up on the register. You think it would be a negative thing? Will this uh, Italian chap transplanting monkeys make more donors? No. <laughs> <laughs> not, not in terms of monkeys, and it's not a very successful successful treatment by all ways. Great, uh, gentleman over there. There was some recently published research regarding taking organs, decellularizing it. Absolutely, and, and that's a very sort of exciting and potentially interesting strategy that various researchers are working on, including people from, uh, researchers from our own department who are trying to do that sort of approach. Um, the, um, it is particularly advanced in one group, uh, uh, driven by a lady called Doris Taylor, and they are able to decellarize um, pig hearts and re then uh, reseed them with um, muscle cells, heart muscle cells, and these hearts do start to beat. But really that is still, uh, I would say, years if not decades away from being able to be transplanted. And one of the problems with um, recellularizing a large organ is the, the vast number of cells that you would require to, to do that. And uh, producing these cells in the sort of numbers that are required of the sort of quality that are required and under the conditions that are acceptable um, are, are actually very difficult. So de removing the cells is sort of one challenge, but then the bigger challenge is then reseed the scaffold with, with the new cells. But it is, again, an interesting and potentially very exciting area of research. Uh, lady at the front. Um, going back to what was answered earlier regarding Danish people knowing, having been interviewed, etc., and knowing that what's going to happen to them, um, what do we do in this country or generally in Europe, in other countries? What is it? You just sign a donor card, carry it with you? Is that all you do? Are these people then called and do discussions? Are they asked about certain you know, preferences or not preferences or etc.? Or is it just a donor card that you can carry with you? I mean, this donor list, how do they get on a donor list? What are the ins and outs of the beginning of a decision such as this? Um, so when you register, um, it, it's, it's a formal process and, and the card is just the physical manifestation, but you run a, a list which is held centrally um, with your specific wishes. And that helps because when someone dies, um, that the transplant coordinators um, can, can find that information um, centrally and they can actually relay that to the next of kin and, and say, look, this is what we have on, on your... But are they actually, once they are on the donor list, or they've chosen to be, sure. are they actually spoken to? Do you realize what this entails? Is, is, so know, no one goes on the donor list without, without them signing and, and filling in the form, essentially. Which yeah, they ought to do it. What I'm saying is that do they have, after they've done their decision, yeah. do they have any contact with the 
so-called part. They can saying, withdraw you know their consent at any stage. I mean, you don't have to remain so remain on the list. Yeah. So there's if you no want other, to come off the list, then there's, there's a no other conversation. There's just a choice, and you put your name, then you carry the donor card, it goes on the list. There's nothing else after that. No, That's not not as a reason. Okay. I mean, if if there are people who are doing studies and conducting surveys and so on, then of course they could mm -hmm. go they could go to those. But you're right. Once you are on the organ donor register, unless you decide to come off it, then 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 you're on the list. There was another question. I'm just going to ask how important is matching of donors to Okay. Well, so in, in terms of liver transplantation, we just um, match according to blood group and, and size. It's as simple as that. Um, in renal transplantation, though, it's more complicated. So in, in renal transplantation, we know that if you have a better tissue match, the, the transplants will last longer. So we match for blood group and the tissue type. Um, but also, matching is not everything. And, and immunosuppression these days can give very good results. So we, we have a, a, an algorithm that works out where best to put a kidney in terms of um, the best tissue match, the, the same blood group, the donor recipient age different, not don't want to give an 80 year old kidney to, to an 18 year old boy, um, and how long the patient's been waiting. And you, you try and make it equal so, so people tend to wait the same length of time um, for a kidney transplantation. It's not the same for livers where people die on the waiting list much more, more readily than, than kidney transplantation where patients can be supported on dialysis for long periods. There's also a peculiarity in kidney transplantation from a living donor, and counterintuitively, um, you might think, kidneys from um, related donors do ever so slightly worse than those from unrelated donors, typically spouses, and no one quite understands why that small difference exists, but the, the assumption is that if you're married to the person or you're living with the person who gave you a kidney, you're probably going to take better care of it than yourself. <laughs> I, I want to touch base on, I think you, you mentioned early on in, in terms of organ allocation. So when there's, assuming there's only one available, if you're actually having multiple recipient needs that in different centers, how do you make that decision in terms of coordination between different centers? So when an organ donor, um, <coughs> when <coughs> next of kin agree to donate, the recipient, the donor coordinators will, will refer the, all the details of the donor to a national uh, central database which is held in Bristol. And then the algorithms will run to allocate the appropriate um, heart, liver, kidneys to, to the various recipients based on a number of different schemes um, specified for each organ. So, so it's, done, it's done that way. It's independent of our, our choice largely. This, this issue of um how, how we best allocate organs is quite a difficult one because there are various competing um, strategies, if you like. So if, if you have an organ from a young donor, let's say a donor in their uh, 20s, and you have two recipients, one of whom is older in their 50s or 60s, and one of them is in their 20s, well, who should get that organ? Should, should the younger, um, younger organ go to the younger recipient because perhaps you will get a longer lifetime out of, longer use or utility out of that organ. What if the, the older person has waited longer? Should it be just a matter of how long you've waited for an organ? And the, and the longer you wait, the more um, priority you should get. So there is a number of competing um, uh, strategies. In many aspects, pediatric 
ch so children are prioritized over over adults, and children would be given the um, uh, priority in terms of an organ before adults are given, um, which is not always the case in in all centres. Yes. You mentioned today the transplantation of eyes, heart, liver, but actually, is it possible to transplant the reproductive system of a female for women, and is it ethically acceptable? Okay. So, so two questions. So, can we? Um, so, is it possible to transplant, for example, the uterus um, uh, in order to allow a, wo a recipient, a woman, to bear a child? And secondly, is it ethically um, acceptable? So, technically, it is possible. It is doable. It has its complexities because it's the technical aspects of doing the transplant, which is not so difficult. But then you have to give immunosuppression. So, you have to give drugs which prevent the rejection of that organ. This will be in a scenario whereby that person is bearing a child and some immunosuppressions we know are not good for developing babies. So there are technical um, difficulties but it has been done. Is it ethically acceptable? <laughs> I think within our um, current regime of bioethics, yes, to do with issues largely of consent. The problem comes more, or the perceived problems come more for some people when the gametes are transferred. Some people get much more worried uh, about egg donation than they do about uterus transplants, for example, so it seems. Um, and there, um, there we have also lined up issues of surrogacy and so on. Um, and all those issues, I think, are, are carefully regulated in the UK. And we call upon the courts to decide often who is going to be the mother, for example, in, in these uh, issues. Um, it, it, not all countries come down in the same place in deciding who is the real mother. Um, the tendency in Britain still, the dominant model of kinship, is is one which we would deem to be a biological model. There are parts of the world where you can achieve kinship uh, through your neighbour. So she's my mother because I work with him, that's my child because we work together. Parts of North America and Alaska, it's very um, common there, for example. But here we have a notion of biological um, kinship and it tends to be through some naive notion of blood and then it's shifted to DNA and then it's gone to the gametes and so um, and, and I think there people do get worried I mean what we thought was natural family and natural kinship keeps shifting in the target and so if you've given away your gametes your eggs are you are you still the mother and I'll of course say no you've donated and it's it's, it's, it's not, um, there's not a continuity of biography there, and we call on the courts to do it. With the uterus, you have donated, in, as far as I know so far, uh, generally, in the same way you donate any other body part. Um, when, when you die, you can, you can choose to donate, for example. Um, but it doesn't seem as yet to pose quite the same problems. Ladies at the back. Okay. And it's, um, we, we all know of patients who, from, even in the UK, who've gone off to, um, to another country um, and come back with a, an organ. And um, it, 
often things don't go well, so it, we, it's strongly discouraged in the UK, but it, I mean, on a global scale, it's, I think it's, um, it's pretty common, actually. Chris, okay. do you? No, no, I, I agree entirely. Yeah. So it's legal in other countries? Um, I think it's a very grey area. It's, um, you know, the, the people who suffer, of course, is, are the, the, the donors in the country where they, they go to, and um, often they're, um, some of them are living kidney donors, and they're paid or are often not paid properly, or um, you know, it's, it's a really very murky area. And it, most of the official transplant societies around the world strongly um, dis discourage and disagree with with that, but it does happen. It is another version of colonialism in some some areas. I think they're worried. The, the major issue is about exploitation of the of the donors, but also. Um, if it is done inappropriately, then the outcomes are bad. The, uh, the donors are exploited. The outcome of the organs aren't good. The outcomes for the recipients aren't good. There is one country where, uh, in the world where paid donation is legal and it's regulated by the state, and that's in Iran, whereby you don't donate your organ to specifically another recipient, but you donate, this is with kidneys, you donate your kidney to the state for which you get a sum of money, and then the state will um, transplant that organ into an appropriate recipient. Again, the, the proponents of that system would say that this is a way of making sure that there isn't black market, as exists in other parts of the uh, world, and is regulated. And the idea, at least initially, was that the state then would provide um, health care cover and health insurance for the donors so that their health wouldn't uh, suffer. But there are... Pro um, Opponents of that system which say that it also doesn't work, but there is that there is the model of paid donation at least in one in one country. Sorry, so 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 the um, the Iranian health officials would 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 say that it is effective and they don't have a, a waiting list for kidney transplantation and they publish their results and the results are good, but I think most outside observers would would still argue that that does not mean that there isn't exploitation, because all the people who donate their organs are essentially from the poor sector of the society. Yes, they get paid a bit more. Yes, they get some health cover. But still, it is the poor proportion of the society that are donating organs to the generally the rich part of the society. Uh, lady at the front. What are the limitations of organ transplantation between different ethnic groups? Professor <coughs> Watson? Um, you, you can transplant between ethnic groups um, without a, 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 a surgical issue of any sort, but some ethnic groups, the results of transplanting some ethnic group organs are, are inferior to others. So, for example, in the US they've shown that um, African-American um, liver donors have poorer outcomes when the liver is transplanted um, into um, either Caucasian or, or African-American recipients than, than, whether, than if it was a, a white, white donor. The reasons for that aren't, aren't, aren't terribly clear. But we know that some, some um, racial groups, um, the uh, African-Caribbean population and the Asian population have a higher instance of some diseases like diabetes and high, high blood pressure, which may make their kidneys less suitable for or less, less good results following transplantation. But, but it's correct <coughs> to say that we don't take race into account when we, when we are assigning a, do a donor organ to a recipient, race is not taken into account. 
I think we'll take about two, two or three more questions before we uh, wind up the session. Lady at the far end. That's a good question. I'm not aware of any data to show that, that blood donors are more likely to become organ donors. One would intuitively would expect that to donate blood is an altruistic um, act so that you would mo be more likely to um, uh, to also become an organ donor, but I'm not aware of the data. Anybody on the panel? I'm not aware of the data, but, but actually to be a blood donor, you need to be fit, and therefore you're unlikely to die young, and therefore unlikely to be an organ donor. That would be the logic I would say. <laughs> but I don't have the data. <laughs> That's right. Maybe at that end. Um, I understand that when you're deciding the suitability of a patient with a transplant list, um, you take factors such as alcohol, alcohol and family stability into consideration. In a world where there was an abundance of organs, do you think you become more lenient about those factors? So, so that's a very, very good question in that we, uh, we have actually quite strict criteria in general for um, accepting patients on the waiting list for an organ transplant. And, th and this, you know, having these criteria is um, by necessity, it's due to the shortage of organs. If the organs weren't limited, then we would say, well, what then limits our ability to provide this treatment? And, and perhaps there would be financial limits in terms of resources that the NHS ha has. But if organs wasn't it, 
the, I think the, the probably um, the expectation is that we would offer more transplants. When you think about it, for some of the other types of treatments that the NHS offers, including expensive treatments, treatments for cancers, we offer treatments where the benefit of the treatment can be quite small. Perhaps you know, increasing uh, a patient's life expectancy by maybe just a few months or, or, or a year. We still offer those expensive treatments. We are not able to offer that to organ transplantation to patients where the benefit is very small simply because we, have, we simply don't have enough organs. Would that be fair? We, would, we are quite yeah, strict I, on I think, liver transplantation. I think it would make life very, very difficult in some ways because um, those decisions would become even harder because we do have a finite resource. At home, so um, so and, and, and giving organs to all um, would, would create problems of its own. But we would certainly, I think you're absolutely right, we end up doing more transplants. Uh, I think I heard right earlier, somebody said that 95% of us in this room would not be suitable to organ donating. That makes me think that you must be wasting an awful lot of time in finding out that people are not suitable. And could something be done at an earlier stage to cut out that time of your wasting for good critical time? Okay, Professor Watson. Yes. It's Andrew Bradley's comment, but it's, what Andrew said was that people die in a situation where they're not suitable to become donors. So, so you may die in bed at home, for example, or, or you may have a heart attack in the street. And, so you're, you're, you die in a way where you're not likely to be, be suitable as, a, as an organ donor. Or you may die from a, a malignancy, from a cancer that's spread through you. A, a third of us will get some sort of cancer. And that's the sort of scenario that, that Andrew was talking about. Yes? Do you think that uh, with, say, non-transplants, that uh, lungs have been almost regenerated to a certain point where they can be transplanted? Do you think it's right to do that for, say, across a bigger range of um, so, in other words, reconditioning organs, is that what you mean? Uh, so, Professor Watson. So, there's been very good work by a chap called Stig Steen, wonderful name, but Stig Steen in, in, uh, in Sweden, on just what you say, he's had lungs outside of a, a body connected to a machine, passing a blood through them and reconditioning them, clearing the airways so that the lungs work better, and then transplanting them 24 hours later. And we're starting to do that now with, with kidneys and with livers, taking organs that we, we may be uncertain whether they'll work, particularly for the liver where you transplant it, you have to know it's going to work straight away. Um, so we can test those on a machine which supplies oxygenated blood to them and see how the liver behaves. Does it work well after donation? Uh, and, and therefore, will it work well in the recipient? And, and actually, we're doing a lot of that now in Cambridge, probably more than any other centre um, for other organs. Um, but but the, the Swedes, Stig and his colleagues, led for, for the lung. Perhaps one, one last question from the audience. Oh, yes, very good. Fine. So could you repeat the question? So uh, the question is asking if you've already had one transplant and it fails, are you eligible to receive a second or even a third transplant? And the, the short answer is yes. And in fact, one of the most common reasons for patients going on our transplant waiting list is they've had a previous kidney transplant which has failed. Um, so um, the answer is yes. Um, you are eligible. There may be complexities, you know, after a liver transplant, there may be some technical challenges which make you unsuitable for a repeat 
transplant, but by and large, um, you know, you're, you're just as eligible as if you hadn't had a. Do, do you think that's a good thing, or do you think that's fair? Who, who thinks that if you have two patients, one, one has had a transplant already, one hasn't, is it fair for those two pa patients to have equal access to, the, to this limiting resource? Who thinks it's fair? Okay. Who thinks you should get priority if it's your first time that you're getting a transplant? Okay, small number. So in general, the consensus is that actually, if you need a transplant, then you need a transplant and you should be treated fairly regardless of whether you've had one or not before. Great, well thank you very much. I think what I might do is ask the panel for any last minute um, pearls of wisdom that they would like to impart, <laughs> <laughs> starting with Professor, <laughs> or any messages or suggestions or questions. I guess the message that I would have, thank you very much for, for coming. Um, when you go home, talk about transplantation and donation to your friends and relatives to get the conversation going. Whether you do or do not believe in donation, having that conversation with your relative, just to, to put a spark in their mind about it would be very helpful. So thank you. Mary? I was going to make exactly that point. Uh, go forth and multiply information. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I, I was going to be much more, much more straightforward. Sign up on the organ donor register. <laughs> reiterate what I said earlier about what um, an extraordinary gift and organ donation is. Great. Thank you very much for your time.